chapter 8 today, Lord willing. For those of you who uh, saw the questions, I asked most of my questions on chapter 9, so I'm trying to speak that into existence, that we'll get into chapter 9, hopefully finish chapter 9. We started chapter 8. It is on, but it's just not picking up. You're not getting anything? Green means on, right? Well, it's on on my end. I don't know if they have to turn something on. Okay. Well, hopefully it'll it'll turn on soon. Let me know if it starts really being loud. <clears throat> okay, so we're we're going to be in chapter eight, beginning. We we begun chapter 8 a little bit, um, and we talked about Israel wanting a king. There's, there is a problem throughout the Old Testament with, with human, human people. It's a little redundant. Um, the, the continuation of rulers, of, of humans. It, it never turns out well that the, the next person is as good as the one that came before. And so this ultimately leads to us realizing that we need a king who is, is eternal and who, who can reign forever. Um, but Samuel has these sons. There we go. Whoa. All right. Samuel has these sons that are not nearly as, as good as he is. They are failures. They are much like Hophni and Phinehas. They, they take instead of providing for, for the people and being spiritual leaders to the people. They take bribes. They pervert justice. And so we see that although in a lot of ways Samuel does better than Eli does, he falls into the same trap of not teaching his children to be to be the kind of person that he was. And so for this reason, the elders approach him and they say, we want a king. Before we get any further, I've asked Phil if he would to lead us in prayer as we begin. God, our Father, we're thankful for the time that we can spend together in your word. Thank you, Father, for giving us your, uh, your wisdom through the scriptures. Thank you, Father, for examples uh, that you have set before us to instruct us, help us, Father, that we might see ourselves in these stories and that we might see how they apply to us as well. Help us to see that we need to be devoted and dedicated to you. Help us that we might not seek after other kings in our lives, but we might put you as the king of our life. Help us, Father, that we would uh, live in a way that we would know that we are subject to you, that we are your servants. Help us that we would uh, tell others of your greatness that they would want as well to submit their lives to you. Help us, Father, in this study that we will be encouraged and strengthened in our faith in you. Be with Isaiah's healing to us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> 
Okay, so in, in 8 verse 5, we have the reason why the people are, are wanting a king. They say, first of all, you're old, you can't do this anymore, and your sons are not able to take your place. They are, they are perverting justice. They're not doing things correctly. And the second, the second reason given here in verse 5 is that we want to be like the other nations. We talked about on Wednesday night that the fact that they wanted a king was not in and of itself bad. There's provisions for that in Deuteronomy where God says you can, you can have a king. But the problem here is the motive, the reason that they want the king. They want this king to replace God. We're going to see that a little more clearly um, a little later in the chapter. But they want someone to replace God as their king. They want an earthly king instead. This is a direct rejection of God. And it is an effort to become like the other nations. Anytime we want to be like people around us in the world, we have to reject God. And so when they say here, we want to be like the other nations, this is inherently a rejection of God. So that's the reason that Samuel is so distressed. It's not in and of itself that they want a king, although I think that does hurt his feelings, as we're going to see in God's response. But more so, it's because they've rejected God as their king. He brings this to God, and he says that the people want a king. And God says, don't worry, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. And he goes back and he talks about the Exodus. It's interesting how much the Exodus has come up in 1 Samuel. But he goes back and he talks about the Exodus and he says, I brought these people up out of Egypt. And ever since I brought them up out of Egypt, they've continued to reject me. And then he says there at the end of that verse, at the end of verse 8, they are also doing so to you. It's not that they are completely not rejecting Samuel. That's something I hadn't picked up on until recently. They are rejecting God first and foremost, but God says they are also rejecting you. But what he's saying here is you should expect that. If these people are not following their perfect leader, if they're not remaining faithful to God, who's their perfect leader, who's never done anything bad to them, but has only delivered them and given them time after time, How much more are they going to reject the earthly and flawed leaders? So, first and foremost, they've rejected God. But they're also, because of that, rejecting Samuel. Because he's wanting to lead them back to God. And so he says, God says to them, Obey the people. Obey the voice of the people. He's going to say that again at the end of the chapter. What what striking language. Obey the voice of the people. That never seems like that would end out, that would turn out well. We'll talk about that a little bit more at the end of the chapter. One more thing that, that God says here at the end of verse 10. He says, tell them what this king is going to be like, who's going to rule over them. 
You can give them this king. They, they can have the king, but, but warn them ahead of time what this king is going to be like. So let's reread. I know we read on Wednesday night, but let's reread this section. This is, this is a key section where Samuel goes back to the people and he tells them, okay, you want a king, let me describe him to you. Beginning in verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow the ground and some to reap the harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be performers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and your vineyards and he will give it to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and he will and you shall be his slaves and in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself but the Lord will not answer in that day. This is the king that they're going to choose. He's he's going to take everything from them. And yes, he's going to lead them out into battle. That's something else that they, they, ask, they mention that they want from a king in verse 20. Yeah, he's going to lead them out into battle, but he's going to take your sons with him into battle. This is the king that they're signing up for. Someone who is going to take everything and give nothing. What kind of a king was God? I want us to look... Uh, quickly back into Deuteronomy chapter 20. I'm sure there's many passages we could go to, but this one jumped out at me. Deuteronomy chapter 20. Beginning in verse 1. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, You shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When you draw near to battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people, and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you victory. Notice now beginning in verse 5. Then the officer shall speak to the people, saying, Is there any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go back, lest he die in battle and another man dedicate it. And is there a man who has planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed the fruit? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in battle. And another man enjoy the fruit. And is there a man who is betrothed to a wife and has not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in battle and another man take her. And the officer shall speak further to the people and say, Is there anyone who is afraid? 
let him go back to his house. All throughout the context of Deuteronomy, the, the emphasis has been God is giving you this land. And then here in Deuteronomy 20, God is going to lead you out into battle, but he's a little bit better than an earthly king because he can guarantee victory. So he's going to lead you out into battle and he's guaranteeing the victory. And then on top of that, he's not forcing anybody to fight. He's saying, you know what, if, if you just bought some land, go on home. If you just married a wife, go on home. If you're, if you're a little afraid, go on home. God doesn't lead these people because he's the king and he's the one leading them out into battle. And it, he doesn't need anybody. This is the king that they're leaving in order to take a king, an earthly king, who's going to take everything from them. And notice the end back in 1 Samuel chapter 8 at the end of that section where Samuel is, is telling the people, look, you don't want to do this. He says in verse 18, when you take that king for yourself, and then he's made slaves out of you and he's taken everything from you and you cry out to the Lord because of him, guess what? God's not going to answer anymore. Because you've chosen. You've chosen your king. You've picked your bed and now you have to lie on it. Notice the people's response. They refuse to obey Samuel in verse 19. You see, they would rather, they say again, we want to be like the other nations. They would rather be like the other nations and have everything taken from them and endure all of these terrible things, becoming slaves in their own nation. They would prefer that to serving the Lord and depending upon Him. They say, no, we want to be like the other nations. We want a king to lead us out into battle. The, the upside of blending in with everybody else is bigger to them than standing out and serving the Lord and having everything that they need given to them. Isn't that striking? Can you see why Samuel is hurt? that the people would choose this earthly king who's going to take from them as opposed to God who's given them everything. What a terrible rejection of God. Any other thoughts there on, on that chapter? Do, do, do you think that they are just wanting somebody that they can see? Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think there's something to that. They, they want somebody who, who looks impressive, as we're going to see in a second. They, they want somebody that they can point to and say, that's our God right there. Um, I, I think there's something to that. I, I think that's something that, that we fall into as well. When we, when we don't see, we're not able to see God, sometimes it's, it's hard for us to depend upon Him in the same way. Yeah, I, I think that's for sure. There's something to that. I find it curious that they're saying, you know, we want a king to go out and fight our battles. Like, do you not remember how well it has gone for you? 
God is the perfect warrior. And yet they reject that for some man to go right. out and fight. Right. The only man that I can think of that uh, is better than the other man, and that would be Samson. <laughs> right. But even he had his limits. Yes. As soon as the Lord's not with him, he's not able to. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It is. It is baffling, and and I meant to. I'm glad you said something about that because I meant to, to really focus on that a little bit more in Deuteronomy 20. You notice how he says that you get ready for the battle in those first few verses of Deuteronomy 20. He says you get your priests. The priest comes out. He makes a speech to the people, and he says, "I'm going to intercede for you," basically. And he says, "The Lord is with you. Go win the battle." That sounds a lot like. Exactly like what happens in First Samuel 7, where Samuel comes out to the people, and the people say, hey, intercede for us. We want to win this battle. And he says, I will. And the Lord strikes them before they even go out into battle. Um, so they were doing it correctly. They were trusting in God, and they were doing it the way God intended, but that's, that's no longer good enough for them, apparently. But... And I, that's, that's really, we, when we see the, the stupidity of this, it should remind us in our own life, anything that we choose to put above God is ridiculous. It makes absolutely no sense. Nothing else is meant to, to be God in our lives. And so anytime that we put even, even something that could be good in and of itself into God's role and we try to serve that, it's going to fail. It's going to leave us in a worse place than we than we were initially. Craig, did you have? Yeah, verse eighteen has a, a, a phrase that reminded me of something back in Exodus. You will cry out because of your king. So back in Exodus two, when they were oppressed by Pharaoh, they cried out because of their slavery. Yes. The difference back in Exodus Exodus two is that God heard. It's, it's one of my favorite passages. God yes. Heard Yes. And he responds, but he's saying, you, if you choose now, basically, to put yourselves back into slavery, by your own choice, you're going to go back to what I rescued you from. I'm, I'm not going to hear you when you cry out something. That, that's heartbreaking. Mm. Uh, but then we also, like you were doing, consider our own lives. How many times have we, God rescued us from sinful decisions and choices? And then we, we still look back and go, oh, wasn't that great back then when we were? And, and we look with desire back on things that we used to do. Um, yeah, let's not put ourselves back into slavery like they were trying to do. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's really good. And hold on to that passage, too, because that, that's something that I, I want to talk about in chapter 9 as well that, that stood out. Absolutely, yeah. God is the one who's been leading them out into battle, and as several people have mentioned, that seemed to be working pretty well for them. What you know, if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Another thing is they, they wanted a king like 
those guys that you defeated? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. The, these, it's, it's so similar to the taking in an idol that you've just defeated the, the nation of and worshiping that idol. It just, it doesn't, you cannot logically work that out in your mind. And also just even in, in this context right here where they say, or Samuel goes through the list and says, this is everything that he's going to take from you. Up and to up and including to your your very freedom, um, and the people say yes. That's exactly what we want. We want that king. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I think that that's very fair to point out. The political, from a surely political standpoint, the stability of a monarchy makes complete sense. Um, to say, hey, we're just, we need some way of having some kind of leadership that's going to be consistent over a long period of time. Obviously, Samuel, what you've done for us in the past has worked, but now it's not going to with your sons. Um, so from, from a political standpoint, it does make some sense, but the, the problem is that they have, and it's so, it's so stark, the contrast between chapter 7 and chapter 8. Everything in chapter 7 that they do, they're inquiring of the Lord first. And then in chapter 8, nothing that anybody does, they're really inquiring of the Lord first. You mentioned on Wednesday night, Samuel seems to put up his sons into this role before inquiring of the Lord. So here they are serving as judges, but he didn't inquire of the Lord before that, as far as the text says. Um, and then the people, the elders have just been thinking, and they think, ah, why don't we have a king? And, and so you see this, this quick departure from chapter 7's ideal of let's, let's check with God, let's see what he wants us to do. And then in chapter 8, let's, they go back to kind of the chapter 4 mentality of, trying to solve the problem at the end instead of getting to the root of their problems and realizing that God is what they need um, and he's the only one who can help them. So, very good. Anne-Marie? That, that's an excellent point. That actually leads me into something that I want to talk about really quickly here. Um, we've just come out of the judges cycle. This is something I didn't mention on, on Wednesday night. 
But chapter 7 is the last chapter of the, of the Judges. And then chapter 8 begins our time period of the United Kingdom. We just read recently, and I don't know if you, you saw this connection, but this jumped out at me. We just read recently in our daily reading, Joshua 24. Now, obviously, Joshua 24, last chapter of Joshua, right before Judges, the time period that the Judges starts. And in Joshua 24, right before the time period of the Judges begins, Joshua gathers all Israel together. And he says, who do you want to serve? Are you going to serve the Lord? Or are you going to continue serving your idols that you have, have been serving? And the people say, we want to serve the Lord. And Joshua says, I don't think you understand what you're getting yourself into. The Lord is a jealous guy. And you have to serve him wholeheartedly. You can't, you can't have some idols in the closet and be serving the Lord. You have to clear everything else out of your life and put God as number one. He has to be the one that you serve. Are you prepared to do that? And they say, we are. We're going to do that. And so Joshua takes out a stone and he sets it up there. And he says, this is to remember that you have chosen the Lord. So every time you look at this from now on, You've chosen the Lord. And then it says at the end of that section that he sends the people away. Everybody goes back to their hometown. And then the Judges cycle begins. The book of Judges, which is really the most dystopian book in the whole Bible that shows us this is life without God. Here's what it looks like when you don't have God in your life. That's what begins right after the people have dedicated themselves to God and said, we will serve the Lord. Here again in Joshua 7, in in, um, 1 Samuel 7 and 8, we've got that same idea. Samuel gathers all the people together at Mizpah in chapter 7. He says, who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve the Lord or are you going to serve idols? And they say, we want to put away our idols. We want to trust in the Lord. And the Lord gives them an opportunity to see if they're going to trust in the Lord. He sends the Philistines against them. And the Philistines come and they pray to the Lord. They trust in the Lord. And the Philistines are defeated. And Samuel sets up a stone. And he calls it Ebenezer. Stone of help. You're going to look at this in times to come. And you're going to say, the Lord helped us. Because we trusted in him. Because we put away our idols. We trusted in him. The Lord helped us. At the end of chapter 8, we see that he sends the people back home after they've asked for this king, just like Joshua had done in Joshua 24. So we've got all over again, the people have dedicated themselves to the Lord. Is it going to be different this time? Are they going to actually serve the Lord this time? Before we we devolved into the cycle of the judges. But is it going to be different this time? Are they going to trust in the Lord? And I think what we're going to see in the book of, of 1 Samuel particularly is that now we, there is a king in Israel and everyone is doing what's right in their lives. Now we've got a king, but it's just like we've talked about. We've got the same root problem because the king isn't seeking the Lord. The monarchy that works, the monarchy that will be positive and will bring about good things in Israel will be the one where the king is singly focused on God and leads the people in that same way. That will work. 
And there will be some kings that will do that. And it will be a, it will be a beautiful thing. So we have, we have to end the Judges cycle and to begin the United Kingdom, the same thing that began the Judges cycle. And we're going to see some of the same things happening in the Judges cycle. So look out for that. I thought that was a great connection there. Um, and I don't know if Anne-Marie, that answered everything, and, but that was, a, that was a great comment that led me to remember to say something about that. One thing that I, I love about this section is that sometimes, in order to show us that, what, that we don't actually want what we think we want, God gives us what we want. That's exactly what he does with the people here. You don't want what you, what you think you want here. You don't want this king. So let me give you a king and show you how bad it's going to be. Sometimes this is the only way for us to learn, isn't it? We need to have what we think we want, and we need to let it, let it wreak havoc in our lives before we realize, no, God's way was best. I want us to take from this chapter that being like the world always seems, always seems nice and like the easy way out, but it always wrecks our lives. It is always a terrible way to go. We don't want to look like the world. We see what looking like the world gets us. We want to be as much like God as possible. Okay. Let's get into chapter 9 here. We've, we've just asked for a king. Now we're, we're looking for a king. So here in, in chapter 9, let me begin by reading. I'll just read the first 10 verses. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekarath, son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was no man, man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish, and, so Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise, go, and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, and passed through the land of Sheshelah, and they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, and they were not there. And they passed through the land of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant, who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way that we should go. And Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered Saul, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us the way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. 
And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went into the city where the man of God was. Okay, here we are. We're introduced to Saul. Um, There was a man of Benjamin. A lot of times, this is the way that a biblical narrative begins. There was a man. This is the way the book began. Remember, there was, there was a man, Elkanah, and his wife, Hannah. So, here's a new narrative. There was a man. And this man is Saul's father. He is a man of great wealth and means, notice, in verse 1. I think that's kind of interesting given the rest of the chapter. Something we're going to see a little later on. He's a man of wealth. And in verse, in verse 2, he is handsome, he's taller than anybody else, he is a kingly-looking figure, we are, we are led to believe here at the very beginning. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't help, but I, I read somebody that, that mentioned this passage, and I thought this was such a, such a good passage to bring in. Remember Isaiah's prophecy of Jesus. In Isaiah 53, verse 2, he was not attractive. He wasn't anything that anybody would look at. But he came to save us of our sins. He was willing to suffer for us. It's not who we would think of as a king, but that was our perfect king. Well, here we've got a guy that looks the part. We've got a guy who's handsome. He's tall. Um, And he's... There's just one downside here. The way that we're introduced to him is maybe not how we would hope to be introduced to a shepherd of God's people. He's looking for his lost donkeys, and he cannot find them anywhere. Now, this is, this is a, a ominous beginning to a story of someone who is supposed to lead God's people. He cannot find these donkeys anywhere, and so he's looking all over the place. Now, he finally says, it, we have a, a detailed list of all these places that he goes, and it's, it's funny as you read through the text, because it, it lists every place that they go, and they didn't find him, and they didn't find him, and they didn't find him. And so Saul is finally, he, he says, look, we're just going to have to go home. Uh, because he said, my, my father at this point is probably more worried about me than he is about the donkeys. And this shows that he came from a good household. Because in our household, Dad wouldn't have been worried about me. He would have still been worried about the donkeys. So this is, this is a good family that he comes from. They're worried about their, their children. Um, but he, he comes and he says, look, we got to go back. But the servant says, why don't we inquire of the Lord? This is not looking good so far, is it? The servant has to bring up Hey, I think we should inquire of the Lord. There's a man of God. It doesn't seem like they know who the man of God is, which is also interesting. But there's a man of God here. Why don't we go and inquire of him? And Saul says, I don't have anything to give him. We're, we're, out, of, we're out of bread. We're, I'm out of money. What are we going to do? And so the, the servant says, look, I've got some money. Let's go. Let's go to inquire of the Lord. We have a note here that formerly in Israel, this, this man was called the seer. Now it's called a prophet, but this, is called, this was called a seer back in those days. I don't know exactly what to make of them throwing that in there, but I do find that interesting. 
Um, and in verse 10, Saul listens to his servant. And he said, okay, let's, let's go. Let's go and meet with, with this seer. So, so far, as we've been introduced to Saul, he, is, he can't keep up with his donkeys. He doesn't think to inquire of the Lord. And he's unprepared. So this is our impression of Saul to this point. Any, any thoughts there on those first few verses, Sarah? Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that, obviously. I, do, I did read something that said a lot of times the way that they would shepherd would be very free range, obviously. So they're not in a pen necessarily. And so maybe it took them a while to realize, you know, these donkeys, are, we, don't, we don't have any clue where they are. You know, normally they're somewhere around here. But so maybe it was a large, maybe it was a large amount. I don't know. Bob, did you have something? Here's a man that where people checked all the boxes. But the fact that he can't find his own donkeys has no idea what they were. How's he going to leave God's people? They're already, before he's even crowned, off to a bad start. Absolutely. Exactly. They're, they're finding exactly what they're wanting. Yeah, that's, that's right. Was there another comment over here somewhere? Okay. Sarah? Sounds slowly, except that it's 
Yeah, there, there may be something to that. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, sometimes the donkeys jump out at you. Well, he was tall, so maybe he could see further than anybody else. Kish had to say. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that's. <laughs> there you go. All right. Man, I, I wish I had some quote from Josephus about those donkeys or something that we could... I wasn't expecting that to be something that we dwelt on. Okay, um, so let's, let's go on for this, this next section of verses. Um, I'll begin in verse 11 and I'll, I'll just stop when I think I should. As they went up to the hill, hill country... <clears throat> They met, a young, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he, is, he has come just now into the city. Because the people have sacrificed today on the high place, as soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up into the city. As they were coming to the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you from Bethlehem, or from the land of Benjamin, and you will anoint him to be a prince over my people Israel. He will save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man whom I spoke with you. He, he it is who will restrain my people. Then, Samuel approached, then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me where, it, where is the house of the seer? <clears throat> okay, let's, let's stop there for now, okay? So we have here in verse 11, they're coming up to the... They're, they're coming upon this, this, you know, civilized area. And so they're finding people who they can ask, okay, where exactly is, is the seer? So they, they come up to these women who are on their way out to draw water. And they ask them, where's the seer? And they say, just go on up there. You're, it's good timing. He's coming into town. He's going he's gonna to bless the sacrifice for the people to be able to eat. <clears throat> So they continue on, Saul and his servant, and in verse 15 and 16, he, it tells us that the Lord has spoken to Samuel, and he knows that, that, that Saul is coming, and he knows that this is the guy who he's going to anoint. Now, this is what I wanted to come back to. Craig mentioned Exodus 2 earlier, and this did not hit me until, and I don't know how, this did not hit me until last night as I was reading it for the last time before bed. In, here, here is Saul coming, meeting women at a well, asking them for some directions. And then, right afterward, a statement by the Lord, that the Lord has heard the cry of the people and he sent this man as a deliverer. 
In Exodus 2, beginning in verse 16, we have Moses meeting some women at a well. And right after that is the statement that that Craig mentioned earlier, that the Lord heard their cry, and he's going to deliver the people. And then in chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 3, the Lord speaks to Moses through the burning bush, and he says, you are the one who's going to deliver my people. And so here is the same, the same type story. He meets these women, Saul meets these women at the well. The Lord has chosen him to save the people. You're going to be the one to bring about this new exodus, to bring about this deliverance of my people from the Philistines. And we'll see if it turns out as well as it did with Moses. Any other thoughts there before we... Before we go on. Okay? Picking up in verse... Well, we'll pick up in verse 18. I think I read this, but we'll start there. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go, and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of the table, at the head of those who had been invited who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you for for which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, see what was kept kept is set aside before you. Eat because it was kept for you in mind until until this hour is appointed that you might eat with the guests, okay? So, they continue, Saul comes up to Samuel here and says, hey, do you know where the seer is? And Samuel says, I am the seer. This whole exchange is fascinating to me. If anybody knows anyone in this story, it should be, you would think Saul might could recognize Samuel. I mean, he's been, he's led the people out into battle before. He's supposed to be the, the face of uh, relig- religious leadership in the nation. So you would think possibly Saul might recognize Samuel. Instead, Saul doesn't recognize Samuel at all. Samuel recognizes Saul, whom he's never met before. Because the Lord has told him, this is the guy who's going to come. So as we go through the story, Saul just doesn't know anything. All the knowledge is on Samuel's side because the Lord is is telling him these things. And so Saul doesn't know any of this. And Samuel says, I'm the seer. Come on up with me. Um, We're going to go eat up there at the the high place. And so they go. There's 30 people there seated around the table. And Saul is seated in a place of honor. 
Now, I did skip over this when he says, he says to him in verse, in verse 20, I'm going to set your mind at ease. You don't have to worry about all those donkeys. They were already found. So right away, he's showing him that he is, he's a prophet because Saul hasn't even asked about these, about these donkeys. He said, the donkeys are found. And I think maybe there's a little bit of sarcasm here at the end of the verse, possibly, where he says... And are you not going to have all that is desirable in Israel? Remember in chapter 8, verses 11 through 18, the king is going to take all that is desirable from the people. And so maybe there's a little bit of satiric irony here from Samuel. And he's saying, you're going to have all you want. What's a couple of donkeys when you're going to have everything you want from the people? But... Saul, I don't know if he understands completely what this means, but he understands that, that Samuel is trying to tell him, you are go- going to have some position now. And he says, I- I'm from the smallest of the tribes, and I'm from the smallest family in the tribes. Now, what, what was interesting to me about that was when you look at chapter 9, verse 1, Saul actually was not from the smallest family. He was from a family of some means. He had some wealth. So this does seem to be a moment of real humility for Saul. He says, no, I I don't, this is not something that I need to to have. I don't need this position. I'm just a humble man. There does seem to be some humility here. And I think rather quickly we're going to see that gone. But that shows us how careful we have to be to continue to maintain our humility and to realize that everything is a gift from God. Um, Think about what what Paul says in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 11 about Christ, how he gave up everything in order to humble himself for us. That's the kind of mentality that we want to have, and that's what Saul seems to lose. Okay, any other thoughts? We're out of time for today. Anything else as we close? All right, thank you all so much.